right. I know what you're thinking. It's like last, uh, last week it took 45 minutes to cover three verses. Now we got 11 to 22 this week, so you're in for a treat. A long afternoon, that's right. Some people, they say this kind of funny. Do you know the story in the book of Acts uh, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is preaching? And he's pre- he preaches until midnight, and some young guy was sitting in the windowsill, like second story or something like that, and he falls out backwards. Um, and so people use that as a way of saying, don't preach too long, because people don't, like fall over and, you know, hurt themselves. But they don't read the rest of the story. What happens? Paul goes out and revives the young man, says he's dead, and like breathes life back into him. God does a miracle, brings him back to life. And then what does Paul do? He preaches until morning, right? So make sure you read the whole context before you use that against preaching too long. So this is uh, week seven of our series, Flourishing in Life with God. And it's been fun to hear uh, just some feedback about the book of Ephesians and how maybe for some of you, this is the very first time you've ever encountered this very precious, precious text. For others, you have a long uh, history with it, and, and it's, it kind of brings new meaning as you hear it again. And so I just, I just continue to pray that God would speak to us through, uh, through his word as, as we explore it together. So in this text that, that Brianna read for us, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, the Apostle Paul, as he writes, he does this, it, you used to be this way, but now you're this way thing again. And he's done that a couple of times. If you go back a couple of verses, he's like, but you used to be like dead in your transgressions and sins, but now you're alive. And so he does this kind of like contrasting your past with your present. And I think that can be a helpful practice for us. In fact, in verse 11, the way he starts out this passage, he uses, in verses 11 and 12, he uses the word remember two times. Remember. Uh, therefore, remember that you formerly who are Gentiles by birth. So, like, this is who you used to be. In verse 12, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ and excluded. And so, I think, like, th- just to notice this, that it can be helpful for us to remember all that God has done for us. In fact, this is one of the most prominent commands in the Bible. Did you know that? If you were going to ask, like, what does is, what is God have to say? Like, what is some of his commands to us. Over 250 times, Old and New Testament, God says, remember. That's a, that's a really interesting thing for God to say, isn't it? Like, remember who you were. Remember what I did for you. And, and one of the reasons why I think this is so important, and we actually sang about it this morning in a couple of the songs, but like the, the last song we sang, I'm not who I once was. How many of you are grateful for that, that I'm not who I once was? You are, you just don't know it. How many are grateful that you aren't who you, you used to be? And so sometimes we can get, like, we can kind of get stuck because our, our growth, our life with God, our flourishing, it, most of the time it doesn't happen in the instant, right? It's this long, slow process of just walking with God. It's, it's turning to Him, and it's learning how to abide with Him, and it's not this flash-in-the-pan kind of thing. Like, sometimes we have these greenhouse moments or experiences where we grow a lot really quickly, but it's, it's often, it's, man, it's putting roots down in, in the soil of God's love, and it's growing slowly over time. And so we can kind of get used to it, and we're like, well, I'm not really changing. I'm not really growing. I'm just kind of stuck where I am. But one question you can ask yourself is, when a hard situation comes up, you ask yourself, how would I have dealt with this a year ago or five years ago? 
right? And, and the things that maybe it's like, wow, I, I'm so upset that I still struggle with this thing. But the struggle is a sign of life. Because like maybe a year ago or five years ago, you weren't struggling with it. It's just the way you lived. But now it's a struggle and you feel that there's like, there's this tension inside of you and that's a sign of life. It's a sign of growth. And so remember who you were. Celebrate what God has done for you and, and what he has brought you through. This can be a helpful way. And sometimes we need other people to do this for us. We, we can do this for each other to say like, wow, you're, you're not who you used to be. And with the most kindness, you know, and respect, but to help each other remind us of God's work in our life. Now, when, when you just read a text like this, there's a part of it that's like, okay, I don't, I don't get it. Because it's kind of a conversation that we're not a part of in some ways. Like, because there are these two groups of people that Paul is addressing, and they would have very much understood it. Paul, we get everything Paul's talking about, but we're separated by about 2,000 years, and there's just these cultural differences, and it's not the world we live in anymore. So it can feel distant from us. But it has really important things to say. So the two groups of people that Paul is addressing in this portion and in this whole letter are the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles. And there is this, these two groups of people, there is a, a history of hostility between these two groups of people. That is a cool noise, by the way. That is awesome. Very crunchy for the worship team. Oh, yes. And a child will lead them. I love that. That's like all these psalms is talking about like the praises of children and infants giving God glory. Like, that's awesome. It's a beautiful sound. Um, So there's a history of hostility between these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And again, if you're not familiar with this, it's okay. It's okay. I'm going to give you a little bit of a a sense of, of where this hostility came from. So let's start with the Jewish people. If you were a part of the Jewish community, that meant that you were one of the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. So you can go all the way back to Genesis 12, and you can look at the origins of this. Like the world is, is kind of in a, a chaotic slide out of control. It's just spiraling into more and more chaos and violence and pride, and, and evil is gripping the human heart. And God intervenes, and he chooses Abraham. And his wife, Sarah, and he says, I'm going to do something different through you. And I'm going to actually bless you. Like, I'm going to give you my life, my blessing. And I'm going to do this so that you can belong to me. And then you can bless the world. See, God's heart is to cure the wounded world. So he's going to, like, put the antibodies of the cure into Abraham and Sarah and to their families. This is the Jewish people. They were always, the Jewish people were chosen, but they were chosen for the sake of everybody else, for those who, who weren't Abraham and Sarah's descendants. That was always God's heart because God says, if you go back and read in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, he says, Abraham, through you, all peoples, all kinds of people are going to be blessed through you. So that's God's heart. This is the Jewish people. Um, but, but the problem is that the, the sinful nature was still, it was a part of their hearts as well. And so what we do as sinful people often is we take the goodness of God and we turn it in on ourselves. We have this like inward curvature of our own hearts. And so we take goodness and we turn it in toward ourselves and we're selfish with it. And that's what they did. They, they kind of said, wow, like God is really blessing us and he chooses us. We must be like, we must be the really special ones to the exclusion of everyone else. And, and that, became, that became a real a real problem. And what you see when you read the Old Testament 
is um, the, the carriers of the cure were infected with the disease themselves, and that's a problem. So the Jewish people, they, they couldn't overcome all of this inward turning of their own hearts. And so they didn't live for the rest of the world. They lived away from the rest of the world. And they, they, um, they hated Gentiles. I mean, they referred to them as, as Gentile dogs. They were, they were unclean. They were, you, you would not have anything to do with somebody who was not a part of the Jewish community. And so Paul is addressing them here. And he, he says, you, you Jewish people, in, in the letter, he's like, you Jewish people, it's like you were near to God. You had all of these things that God had revealed to you. You had the commands of God, the Torah. You knew how to walk with him in life. You had covenants. God, like, bound himself to you in relationship. And, and by the way, one of the covenants he made with Abraham, and I don't know why God shows this. I really don't. But if you read Genesis uh, 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, he renews that covenant. And then in Genesis 17, he gives him a sign of the covenant, which is referenced in these verses. And that sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants was the sign of circumcision. Now, those of you who don't know what circumcision is, I have a diagram. Um, I don't. I don't. How weird would that be? You can talk to your pediatrician. So, I, I don't know why exactly that God chose this as the sign, other than that they carried like they carried the symbol of their belonging to God in their bodies, like in their own flesh. And, and so God shows this, and this was, this was a mark that they belonged to God. So they had this sign of the covenant. They had forgiveness. They could go to the temple. They could receive atonement at oneness with God through the sacrificial system. They had present, the presence of God through the temple, that the Jews were near to God. They had all of these things, and still their hearts were turned away from God. Their hearts were hard, and they were still dead in their sins. That's what the Apostle Paul says. You were, you were near but you weren't better than anybody else. You were still dead in your sins. And then he addresses the other group, and that's kind of primarily who he's speaking to in this passage, the Gentiles. And he says, you were the opposite. You were far away from God. It's like you, you didn't have access to God. You were following all these pagan gods, these false gods. You were foreigners. You were outsiders to the covenant. You were excluded. And he says this, you were without God and without hope in the world. I mean, think about that. That was a bleak existence. Now, how many of you have Jewish heritage? Like, you really, like, you could track your lineage back to Abraham and Sarah biologically. Does anybody? I'm curious. Nobody in the room. Okay. Sure. So you'd have some, some Jewish heritage in there. Okay, great. And some of us might, might as well along the way. But for the most part, which group do we belong to? The, the insiders or the outsiders? The Gentiles. Like we're all Gentiles. We're all outsiders. So when Paul is addressing this to us, if we would have lived 2,000 years ago, we would have felt this very keenly. We were foreigners and exiles and strangers and far away. We had no access to the one true God who had revealed himself to the people of Israel. Do you, are, you, are you with me here? This is us. In fact, this is the only reason why we have access to, to the one true God revealed through, um, through the Old Testament and ultimately revealed in Jesus is because of what Jesus had done. And so these Gentiles, right, this bleak outlook without hope, without God in the world. So now let's say, let's say you did live 2,000 years ago. 
or, or 2,100 years ago. And all of a sudden, maybe you had a Jewish neighbor who loved you. We talked about neighbors this morning. You had a Jewish neighbor, and you were curious about their way of life. You know, they're just, just unique, this, this way that they're living. And all of a sudden, you were drawn to the God that they worshiped, right? And so you, you gave your heart to this one true God, and you began to worship God in your home, and you would, you would maybe, like, stand outside synagogue when they would when they would teach and you would listen to the scriptures be read and your heart, every time you heard this message of the, how God has revealed himself to Abraham and his family, you were drawn to that and you wanted desperately to be a part of it. So what you decided to do is like, you were gonna take an offering and you wanted to worship God. So you took something of great value to you and you made the trip to Jerusalem to the temple because if you wanted to worship God, you would go to the temple. This is where God's presence was. So you, you made the trip, you, this long, hard trip to Jerusalem to the temple, and you brought your offering with a heart that was overflowing in worship. And you got there, and there was kind of like a bustle around the, the temple courts. There were lots of people there, people who looked kind of like you and people who looked different from you, and you were a little nervous. But then you started to make your way in, because that's where all the action happens, is like in the temple. And you came to a, through the courtyard, there was a wall. And you had to go through this gate into the inner courts. And you happened to read, you started to catch glances from people. And you happened to read this sign that was above the gate, going from the outer courts to the inner courts. And here, this is the actual sign that they've dug up through archaeology. And this is what it says. No foreigner, Gentile, is to go beyond the terrace and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Hey, I'd just like to welcome you to the temple. It's a great day to, like, yeah, come on in. No, no foreigners. If you're a Gentile, you cannot go in. You do not belong. How do you feel? Right, your heart's ready to worship, and you've had the sacrifice, and you, you want to do this, and you bounce hard off of this. You are excluded. You are a foreigner. You are an outsider. You don't belong here. Now, do you believe they took this seriously? Absolutely, they took this seriously. It, again, we've referenced Acts 19 a couple times over the last few weeks because Acts 19 tells the story of how the Ephesian church got started, Acts 18 and 19. And so... Um, in Acts 19, there's this, there's this little account where the Apostle Paul, he, he's been out spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus now, to the Gentiles. And he's saying, you're in. You can come in. Jesus has given you access. Don't worry about the temple sign. You can belong. And Paul, Paul's been doing this, and he's seen the Spirit do amazing things, planting these churches. But now he comes back to Jerusalem, where the temple is, and he brings one of his buddies from Ephesus, one of the Ephesians, with him a Gentile who's come to believe in Jesus. And he brings him with him, and here's what Acts 19, 27 to 31 says. It says, so some Jews from the province of Asia Minor, they saw Paul at the temple, and they stirred up this whole crowd, and they seized Paul, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and against this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks that's another name for Gentiles. He's brought Gentiles into the temple, and he has defiled, made unclean this holy place. Now, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he gives this a little side note in parentheses, verse 29. He says, now they had previously seen Trophimus, the 
What does the text say? The Ephesian. So this, this guy Trophimus, right, he's hanging out with Paul, and they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and they assumed, they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple, but he, he hadn't, actually. But even on that assumption, it was enough. So verse 30, the whole city was in uproar. People came running from all directions, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut, and while the people were trying to kill him, right? They were taking this sign very seriously. While the people were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops, and the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. This was the reality of how excluded and foreign and like unavailable the presence of God was for every one of us in this room, except Rachel for a little bit. I mean, do you feel that? They took this very seriously. Now, one, one quick note on the book of uh, Ephesians here. If you bump ahead to, to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul will say this. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Why is Paul in prison? Because of Trophimus, the Ephesian. And he's in prison. He's sitting in a Roman like prison house arrest right now. That's where he's writing this letter from. And he's like, for you Gentiles? And you could insert your own name in here. I could have been Trophimus. You could have been Trophimus. Right? And Paul, it cost him something to preach this gospel that invites foreigners and exiles and strangers in. Do we, do we feel how significant this is? Okay. So, that's the backstory between Jews and Gentiles. These, these insiders, outsiders, the near and the far. Do you know what it feels like to be excluded? Can you think of a story in your life? Because I'm guessing most of us have them. Where, where you found yourself really wanting to belong and to be in, but you were, either it was communicated to you, or you felt, or you, or you knew, because it was made explicit, you don't belong. Like, you, you were not a part. That's a painful feeling, isn't it? And everybody wants to belong. Like every human being has a desire to, to be included, to be in the circle, to be in the group. But like, so part of my story, and, and I share this as a like, I am glad I'm not who I once was. But I was, I was a very insecure um, young man. I had a, a bit of a speech impediment, and I always felt, and some, some like, borderline learning disabilities, so like, I, reading has always been a really difficult thing for me. In fact, I remember in, I think I was in fourth grade, we were doing those timed reading tests, like in school, where you would like, you'd read the story, and then you would take a, a test on it, and so I remember sitting there, I, I could tell you like what seat in the classroom I was sitting in, and you know, there were two girls, um, really smart young ladies sitting on either side of me, and we'd be reading, and like, the one beside me would turn the page, and I'd be like... And then the one beside me on the other side would turn the same page. And so I would turn the page. Now, I'm a paragraph in out of like eight paragraphs. But I didn't want to look like I'm so far behind. So I'm just like, whew, I'd turn the page. And then they'd turn the next I'd just turn the next page. I didn't do well in school, right? Um, and so I, I always wanted to belong, to be in. And, and I, so I worked really hard to like to fit in and I worked hard at sports and and all the things that I felt like okay this would be my key and and something about like my junior year it was a complete surprise to me we're like um all of a sudden I was like getting invited to things that I was never invited to before 
right? I was, I was being included. And you know how I felt? I felt really good. But do you know what I discovered in that? Is it brought something really ugly out of my heart. Because part of the experience of being included and part of the joy of that is excluding other people. And some of the things that I am most ashamed of in my life are those things that I did and said that like communicated to other people, you're not in, like you're not welcome. Like those are the things that I carry deep remorse in my heart for. And that can happen. Like we can, we can take a, the, the inward curving of our heart, we can just say like, wow, like I, I'm included to the exclusion of everybody else. And it, we all know what it feels like to be excluded and it is, it is a terrible thing. And so, the Apostle Paul goes on, verse 13, he says, but now, like, right, but that used to be your reality, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like, that there is something about the sacrificial death of Jesus that brings outsiders, that brings the excluded, and brings them near, that Jesus was reaching out to us through his death, and he was giving his life for, for Jews and Gentiles together, for insiders and outsiders together, that Jesus was giving his life for everyone because everyone, insider and outsider, equally needs a savior and a king. And Jesus was, was making himself available for us. So we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 14, and then it says, it's so beautiful, for he himself is our peace. It's not just that Jesus gives us peace as something. He doesn't just reconcile like as like a thing that he does, but he himself is our peace. His presence is our peace. He is the one who brings reconciliation. He has made these two groups one and has destroyed, get this, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what barrier and dividing wall of hostility do you think Paul is referencing here? The sign at the temple. Exactly. I mean, if you're reading this, sitting in that context, you would have known exactly what barrier and dividing wall of hostility the Apostle Paul was referencing. It was that very literal barrier from God's presence and everybody else that Jesus has in some ways torn that down. But it's not just that. He tears down the dividing walls of hostility that exist between us, between people in, in our relationships, the physical and the literal walls that we erect that keep insiders in and outsiders out. And the good news is that because of what Jesus has done, Jesus has made available the presence of God, access to God's presence um, for anyone. And we find ourselves on level ground worshiping God together, that God's purpose was to bring these two groups together, insiders and outsiders, and make them one. Now, how are we doing? You hanging in there? Couple, couple more verses here. Verses 15 to 18. His purpose, the purpose of Jesus was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, his own body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he, on the cross, put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So the purpose of Jesus, his purpose was to create one new kind of people, one new humanity. It's what the people of Israel were always called to be, but they couldn't 
right? One new humanity out of the two, out of the divisions, out of the brokenness, out of all of the barriers and the dividing walls of hostility that Jesus came to take those down and to create people in himself, in his body, the body of Christ, is called to be this one new humanity, that Jesus is inviting us into a new way to be human, a new way to relate to each other, uh, where there are no longer insiders and outsiders, where there are no longer people who are near and far, no longer included and excluded, no longer separated by barriers and hostility. In Jesus, we become one new humanity. That is what Jesus, his purpose was, the the Apostle Paul says, his purpose for the church. And so some practical implications of this. Jesus wants to put our relationships back together. This is a big deal. Like sometimes we, we get this idea that spirituality is just like, hey, it's me and Jesus. Like, I don't really want to, I mean, and there was a, there was a part of this um, that, that maybe we all feel in some ways, maybe some of us are more bent toward it than others, but it's like, I just, I just kind of want this thing. I just want like me and Jesus, and I don't really want to clutter it up with anybody else, with other people. Because people, that's, I'm good with Jesus, but people, that's where the problem is. You know what I'm talking about, right? It gets hard, and you can't have that. Like, the, the reality is Jesus does not allow us to make that differentiation. Jesus says all kinds of things like, oh, by the way, like, if you love me, you'll obey me, and one of my commands is to love one another well. Like, you... You can't separate that. And so, like, the purpose of Jesus is to reconcile us to God, to give us access to the Father. But we realize that we have access to the Father together, and we are being created into this new humanity where we relate to each other differently, where we learn to honor each other and respect each other and love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, not using one another in selfish ways or, or doing harm to each other, but laying down our lives for one another because that's what Jesus has taught us to do. Jesus, like we live in a world that has been so shaped by Jesus that we we can't even unsee it. Like we just kind of automatically assume that, hey, all people are created equal. Do you think that's a self-evident truth? I mean, that's what our founding document as a country says. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. Is that a self-evident truth? doctrine. From the beginning of time, everybody just knew, hey, we're all equal. Everybody's equal. Absolutely not. Before Jesus, the very best and brightest, most influential scholars, people like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, they said, you know what the best thing is you can do to to have a society that's strong is you have like these very clear places where everybody fits. The, the, The wealthy should never associate with the poor. You should treat slaves as less than human. It's going to mess everything up to treat them as human beings. Women are treated as property. Sorry, ladies. This was the, this was the world before Jesus. Like, thank Jesus that he, right? He did what he did. This, like, so we, we live in this idea that, like, no, everybody just gets this. Societies are best when all people are created equal. It was not self-evident until Jesus came in the flesh and made it evident. Like, we will have no idea, we can't even begin to grasp how revolutionary Jesus was, that he changed everything. That Jesus doesn't erase our differences, but he breaks down the divisions that keep us apart. We're still different from each other. 
And around the world, Christians around the world, we're different from one another. And if we were going to tell our stories in this group of like, hey, tell me about your family of origin. Tell me about the the way you were raised. And tell me about like all of this stuff. We would have very different life experiences. We have so many differences. But those differences don't have to divide us in Christ. That he is knitting us together in one new humanity. And that is still as radical today as it was in the first century. That Jesus wants to heal our relationships. Man, the church was the very first community. This, this church in Ephesus, for example, is the very first group of people in history that lived this way. That said there, there should be no divisions between us, the wealthy and the poor, they're together. You actually had churches, and probably the case in Ephesus, where you have people who had servants, and, and the masters, like servants and masters, were in the same church together, learning to love each other well. You had, you had men and women, young and old, and the biggest division of all, Jews and Gentiles. So the church became this picture. When people looked at the church, they said, wow, that is a new way to be human. And that was the purpose of Jesus. One new humanity out of the two. Now, don't, please don't hear, hey, let's just all get along. Let's just, you do you, I'll do me. Let's just be one big happy family. That's not what Jesus is saying, right? Because he himself is our peace. Like, we can't miss this. Like, he is the one who reconciles us. It's only in him. I don't know how to create unity. I don't know how to bring reconciliation if Jesus is not the center of it. He is the only force I know that has the gravity to pull different kinds of people together um, to, to worship him. Right? I, I don't have any answers outside of that. It is he himself who is our unity. He himself who is our peace. And so the, the, the best thing we can do as, a, as individuals is to keep Jesus at the center of our lives, to pursue him, to follow him, to love him, to walk with him, to abide in him, life with God. And the best thing we can do as a church is to keep Jesus at the center of our church. Now, Paul and the, the scriptures have this very high view of the church. Do you feel that? Man, let's be one new humanity. Let's be like this shockingly radical culture, group of people in the middle of a divided world. How is that actually working out for the church in the world today? Right? I mean, it's one thing to say, Woo, that's awesome, this was the purpose of Jesus. It's another thing to say, like, I don't think we're doing so good. I mean, like, the church, right? God's people around the world. Um, sometimes, sometimes the church can just look like a reflection of the culture, That all the divisions you see out there, all the divisions you see on social media, right? They just come into the church and we can just be as divided and fragmented as the world out there. I mean, we we feel this. And so, like, what what do we do with that? Um, There's this this Australian um, historian uh, and and theologian, uh, John, John Dixon was his name. And have you guys ever heard, and I'm not like, I'm not into classical music that much, but you've, you've probably heard it. I, I had heard it, but I wouldn't have recognized this. The, the name of the song is called uh, Box Cello Suite Number 1 in G Major. Anybody know this song? Yes? Do you play cello? Oh, I should have I said something. Do you play it? Oh, okay. Next Sunday for prelude, we're going to do this. How about that? Maybe. So, it is a beautiful song, right? And 
um, if Katrina was going to play this, it would be, it would be stunning. It would be beautiful. So what this guy, John, uh, John Dixon, did is he took a two-hour cello lesson. Right? Never picked up a cello, never held one in his hands before. Took a two-hour cello lesson, and then he practiced for five days. And he rented out this massive theater in Sydney and invited the whole community, friends and family, and everybody to come and hear him play box cello piece. How do you think it went? Not very good. It would be about like me, like right, trying to play this piece. It was, it was terrible. Now, if, and here was his point. He, he kind of talked about it afterwards. His point is, if you had never heard of Bach, if you had never heard this song before, you would think, man, that Bach is a terrible composer. Or he did not, this is terrible music. And this song is horrible if you just heard his performance of it. And so like, his point was that Jesus is the most like unbelievably amazing composer the world has ever seen, right? And, and Jesus composed a life that was the most beautiful song that the world could ever, ever imagine, that Jesus, he, he loved his enemies and he cared for the poor and he came to set the oppressed and the oppressors free and Jesus, like sacrificial love was just everywhere out of him and he was, he, he was just like so in tune that, like, the look at the life of Jesus, it was like the most beautiful thing we could have imagined. And he passed these things on to the church, and he, like, Jesus gives us the cello, and we play it. And sometimes we hit some really beautiful notes, and it's inspiring. And sometimes we make a mess of it. But don't judge the composer or the song by the quality of the performer. Are you with me? Right? Don't, like, don't throw the composer and the song away because sometimes the church messes it up. Like, of course, of course, we, we mess it up. Jesus, Jesus is still, he, he's still wanting to do something beautiful through, through his people. Jesus is at work in the church. Slide 24. Jesus is at work in the church. Do you believe this? Hey, where's Jesus at work? Do you remember this story? There's this beautiful story from when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, and his parents went to Jerusalem to the, to the temple to worship, and then they're on the way home. Do you know this? They're on the way home, and they all of a sudden they get, it's a whole community of people traveling, so like everybody from Nazareth is traveling, you know, 80 miles together back home. And all of a sudden it's like, where, where's Jesus? Is he with, like, Mary's looking around, and Joseph's looking around, and, you know, is he with the aunts and uncles, whatever? We don't, nope, we lost Jesus. That's, that's a bummer. And so they turn around, go back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus, and where is he? He's in the temple. And then they're like, Jesus, like, what are you doing? Like, you were to sick. And Jesus like, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Do you know where Jesus still is? He's in his father's house. He's in the temple. And where's the temple? The temple's right here. Like, right? It's among us. It's in his people. This is what the Apostle Paul, this is how he ends this text, is he says this, consequently, brothers and sisters, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you are members of his family, his household, and you are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, those who came before us, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, we, this whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Do you know where God's at work, where Jesus is at work? He's at work in his people. Now, he's at work in the world too, of course he is, but he's, Jesus is at home in his father's house, and that's us. Like, if you're a part of the church, you're not just another brick in the wall, right? 
you are a part of the temple of the living God. Don't take this for granted. Honor this. Treat it with dignity and respect. There's a lot of people who have just, like, they're done with the church. Like, you know, like the church, they... And I get it. There's a lot of pain and there's brokenness and the church messes it up sometimes. But so people just like withdraw and they say, I'm, I'm done with the church. And so like we live in a time when, when people are like finding lots of fresh expressions of the church. And so there are dinner table churches and apartment complex churches and backyard fire pit churches. And, and I don't have a problem with any of that stuff. I think fresh expressions are awesome. God is always doing new things. But here's the one caution Eugene Peterson said this, and I think it's so brilliant. Are there people around your circle who you wouldn't have chosen? Because if our church is an invitation-only experience, if everybody you relate to is people who you would invite over and you, know, you would have chosen these people because you live in the same socioeconomic status and you're about the same age group and you're about the same you know, neighborhood and all this stuff, then it's not, it's not the one new humanity that Jesus had, had envisioned. That the church is like all kinds of people drawn to Jesus at the center, and he is at work in that, building up the temple of the Lord. When I was a kid, we used to sing that song, building up the temple, building up the temple. I had no idea what it meant, right? And this is what it means. Like, you have a role to play in the temple of God. So a couple of just questions as we end. Are there any walls of hostility in your heart like that if you would search your heart and you would ask Jesus to like, Lord, would you, would you search my heart and are there any barriers and dividing walls of hostility that exist in my heart that you want to tear down? Would you spend some time asking Jesus that question this week? And just be open, just be honest for his like searchlights in our, in our heart. Now let me say this, barriers and dividing walls of hostility are different from healthy boundaries. Like, there, there are relationships where we need healthy boundaries, where we need distance, where we need protection and safety, and it is good and right to do that. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about these dividing walls of, of hostility and excluding people, not because of just things that they have done, but because of just, like, just the basis of, of who they are, that you don't feel like they belong. So, we're not talking about healthy boundaries. We're talking about walls of hostility in our hearts. Are there any of those? Are there any bridges that need to be built or repaired in your life? Like, are there any relationships that you're just like, wow, okay, maybe it's in the church. And you're just like, you know what, there's, there's some damage in that relationship, and I'm going to take Jesus' call seriously, and I'm going to work from my side as much as I can, I'm going to move toward that other person to repair or, or to build a bridge of relationship. Maybe a response to this is just, I need to, I need to keep Jesus at the center of my life. What does it look like for me to, to do this? Like to, to keep Jesus in front of my mind always and at the center of my heart, to begin my days with surrendering myself to Jesus, to go to bed at night surrendering myself to Jesus and keep him at the center of my life. And then lastly, you know what the most radical thing we can do, I think, is to eat together. Good news, we have lunch today. This is one of the practices of the early church. This is how they lived out their one new humanity. You have wealthy and poor and... and um, People who come from, you know, really stable backgrounds and people who come from difficult backgrounds and, you know, people have all different kinds of histories and they sit around the table together and you look at people and you're like, what do these people have in common? And you know what the answer is? Just Jesus, right? He brings us together. So when you eat a meal together today, like maybe eat with people who you don't normally eat with. Like eat with somebody who is a little bit out of your comfort zone or whatever. Um, 
but, but realize that as we do that, as we gather around the table today, we are, we are experiencing that one new humanity that Jesus had in vision. Uh, worship team, you guys can come back up and I'll close with prayer. Lord Jesus, you're building your church. You are at work. And Lord, we just confess that we are, we are so often, we hit wrong notes and we miss it and we do damage and we hurt each other. And so, Lord, uh, we ask for your healing power. We ask, Jesus, that you would make yourself, um, you would make yourself, like, just so comfortable at the center of our lives and at the center of our life together that we would never allow anything to displace you at the center, that we wouldn't allow the divisions that exist in the world to just to, to make their way in and divide us, but we would find our unity in you because you are our peace. Jesus, do your work by your spirit. I pray that you would surprise us this week. I pray that you would bring us opportunities that we didn't imagine, that we would step toward you and we'd be faithful to you, and you would do all the heavy lifting that needs done, and we would just follow along like in, as you take the lead. So we love you, Lord. Do your work in us. Do your work at LifeBridge. Do your work in the churches in this community, in your church around the world. Bring healing to the woundedness of the world through your people your new covenant family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.